The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. As a skeptic about faith for a period of time, I wanted to reach those people, not those who already agreed with me, but those who were not sure, but because they're attracted by a title or by a question, maybe they would give it a shot. His writings have accomplished his goals over and over again. Coming up, you'll meet author Philip Yancey, and learn more about his life and purpose of exploring the deeper spiritual questions often asked by skeptics and believers alike. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. My conversation with Philip will begin in just a moment. Thanks for listening. As always, I invite you to check out our website for additional information about this week's interview, as well as hundreds of previous interviews. Visit firstpersoninterview.com to listen. And to download programs for on-demand listening, use our free smartphone app, First Person Interview. These conversations are made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company. Please visit febc.org for stories of changed lives through the hundreds of broadcasts that go out each day. Well, probably like you, I would be hard-pressed to name a favorite book by Philip Yancey. His writings often explore the deeper questions of the Christian life and end up bolstering our faith as we dare to doubt. Philip and I talked on the phone recently, and as we began, I asked him if it was true that he was writing a personal memoir. <laughs> that is true. It's not my whole life. It's it's really my upbringing, growing up in the racist, fundamentalist South in a very conservative church, straying away from that and then finding my way back, and the journey to becoming a writer. So the early years, oh, primarily. Good. good. Philip Yancey, the uh, early right. years. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, I look forward to reading that. We'll give a little preview to our listeners in this conversation, okay. hopefully, here today, because I want I wanted to start with your hyper-fundamentalist background. I know that really um, was something you had to really kind of detox from. It was, and in Atlanta, Georgia, in the uh, 1950s, early 1960s, racism, of course, was a big part of that, and my church was blatantly racist. They, I don't know if your listeners know the phrase, the curse of ham theory, but it was a, it was a, heretical theory that uh, Ham was cursed. It was actually Canaan in Genesis 9, not Ham, but Ham in Hebrew we were taught means burnt black. And so the descendants of Ham and Canaan were cursed by Noah, not by God, cursed to be slaves, to be servants of Shem and Japheth, the other uh, sons of Noah. And uh, for years that was taught in the South as an explanation of why talk about white privilege, white superiority, why whites were in charge and blacks were condemned to being the servant class. So you could you could never expect to see a black CEO, for example. Well, I was taught that growing up. You know, when you're a kid, you believe the things that, that others tell you. But it came to a, an abrupt conclusion because I got a, a fellowship my junior year in high school that late to the Center for Disease Control, as it was called then, or the Communicable Disease Center. And I knew that my supervisor was a Ph.D., a very renowned man named Dr. Cherry. I wanted to impress him, so I studied stuff I couldn't possibly understand about his scientific expertise. And I walked into his office, 
opened the door, and he was a black man. Ding, 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 ding. I realized that I had been lied to, mm. that uh, he was a brilliant man, more accomplished than just about anyone I'd ever met, and he was defying what I was taught in church. And that was the sense of betrayal, part of a betrayal that made me move away from the church and become skeptical. If they can lie about race, maybe they could lie about the Bible, maybe they could lie about God, and began a, my own pilgrimage of trying to sort through what I was taught in this almost cultic, fundamentalist background, what was worth keeping, what was biblical, what was true, and what was not. Hmm. Interesting. So then you come to uh, Christian College in the North, and the uh, the journey continued, right? Yeah, I ended up in Wheaton, not far from where you live, and that was a, a wonderful experience for me. I needed a job. I was in school, and in graduate school there, I started working for Campus Life magazine, which was a Christian magazine for young people associated with Youth for Christ. I learned to write there. I had teamwork. I had a wise mentor by a man named uh, Harold Myra, who later became president of Christianity Today Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And journalism was was a a great stepping stone for me. I could write about other people's stories while I was still trying to figure out my own story. Hmm. And not long after that, I met the person who really became a spiritual mentor to me. His name was Dr. Paul Brand. I was writing a book on pain, my very first book, Where Is God When It Hurts? And I met him. He was a a missionary in India for years, worked among people with leprosy, and he was the one who discovered the essential value of pain, how brilliantly it's designed and incorporated in our bodies to protect us against harm. And that's the problem with leprosy patients. They don't have that defense mechanism, so they hurt themselves. And for 10 years, I followed him around, and he, he was kind of the father I never had. My father died when I was a year old in one of the polio epidemics in 1950. And so I never really had a, a father figure, and he became that to me. And I later, I kind of joke, it was a great thing to do, to get to, get to choose your own father. You know? <laughs> Some people have to go through individuation, overcoming problems with their parents or whatever. I got to choose one, yeah. and uh, it was a great period for me just to sort out what kind of person I wanted to be. He was a beautiful model. Well, I remember, and of course it's still available widely, how beautifully written that book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, was, and what a great book it is. Uh, Dr. Brand was really quite a, quite a person. In fact, Wayne, just a year ago, I went back, I, I wrote three books with him, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, In His Image, and The Gift of Pain. Mm-hmm. I took two of those, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and In His Image, redid them. They'd been out for 35, 40 years, and the science had changed, the medicine had changed, and I got to go through and, and kind of combine them, keep the very best, edit them for a new generation of readers. He's he's a hero, yeah. and I didn't want his legacy to disappear. Yep. So uh, th- that's been reissued by InterVarsity Press. It's called Fearfully and Wonderfully. And that's the one that's subtitled The Marvel of Bearing God's Image? Is that it? Correct. Okay. That's it. All right. It's yeah. Up. Well, uh, it's so fun to talk with you. Uh, you know, I would mention more titles of your books, but it would take the remaining time of our conversation here to list them all. <laughs> so, but Where's God When It Hurts You mentioned, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. My goodness, the, the issues that you've written about. And here's the thing, Philip, I remember. You, you talk about starting out at Campus Life. 
I remember you writing about things back before the church was really awakened to some of these issues. I mean, you started talking about race a few moments ago, and you were writing about these things before the church was really very comfortable talking about it openly. We had that legacy at Campus Life. We were, this was in the um, early 1970s, and you know, the church is always a little bit behind. We were kind of going through what the rest of the culture had gone through in the 1960s. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were discovering global poverty and injustice and racism and these things. And uh, we're writing to a younger generation, and we had to come to terms with them. And because I had been betrayed, is the word I would use, by the church I grew up in, I, I always felt it important not just to go with the party line, but to take a look for myself, to really dive in. And I would write my books, not because I had it figured out, but because I didn't have it figured out. Sometimes I joke, when I have a deep, penetrating question, I write a book about it, (laughs) because it gives me the chance to go to people who can help, go to the Bible, do the study that I need, and try to come to terms and wrestle with those questions. So for that reason, a lot of my books have titles. Prayer yeah. doesn't make any difference. Yeah. You mentioned, where is God when it hurts? Uh, the Jesus I never knew. You mm-hmm. know, it, My books are my personal pilgrimage, and I have the great privilege, I consider it that, of being able to work out my pilgrimage in print. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that you write with such honesty about faith and, and doubt, um, that, that's not the typical thing that we pull off the Christian bookshelf these days. Uh, doubt, I mean, maybe more so now than when you were starting out in uh, early in your career, but you, were, you led the way there, Philip. I really commend you for that. I remember uh, the second book I wrote kind of on my own was a book called Disappointment with God. Yes. And uh, my publisher, when they got that title on my manuscript, said, you know, um, we can publish this, but I don't know about this title. <laughs> Uh, Wait a minute. How about you, you, something like how I overcame disappointment with God? You got to choose your own title? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I said, um, I don't really want to write to people who have overcome disappointment with God. They don't need this book. I want to write to people who are right in the middle of it. And because I had lived as a skeptic, as a, in some ways, cynical uh, person about faith for a period of time, I wanted to reach those people, not those who already agreed with me, but those who... We're not sure they're ready to listen to me, but because they're attracted by a title or by a question, maybe they would give it a shot. We're getting to know author Philip Yancey on today's First Person, and I invite you to stay tuned for the second half of the conversation. I decided to escape North Korea after listening to FEBC's broadcast. I was able to keep my faith firm by listening to your programs. Just one of millions of grateful people who listens to the Far East Broadcasting Company in her own language. FEBC is dedicated to taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. To learn more, please visit febc.org. That's febc.org. The Far East Broadcasting Company, until all have heard. My guest is author Philip Yancey. Philip, you left the incubator of Wheaton, Illinois, which was still kind of considered the holy city back in the day that you lived here. So many Christian organizations were founded after World War II in Wheaton, mission organizations, Youth for Christ that you mentioned, Campus Life. Uh, But you left for Colorado. Yes. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, that's that's pretty bold. 
Uh, <laughs> but what, what was your reason for moving? Actually, we lived in Wheaton about eight years, and then we moved to downtown Chicago. Oh, yes, I'd forgotten and, that. Yeah. And those were formative years. We we were scared when we moved in. You know, we're white suburbanites, and we mm-hmm. think we're going to get mugged every other day down there. Uh, boy, I can identify our first apartment. <laughs> we we came from, from farms, basically, and our first apartment was in downtown Chicago. When oh, I was, my goodness. I was afraid to open the door after dark. Right, really was, right. Yeah. But... But the city was a great place for us. We were in our 30s, my wife and I, and, and we went to concerts and art theaters and, and plays and just had a wonderful time and had a great church, LaSalle Street Church in Chicago, mm-hmm. that was involved in, in many social work programs. My wife became a director of one of those programs. However, Chicago is a busy place. People were coming in and out, publishers, agents, meeting me, uh, I'd look at my calendar at the beginning of the week, and it's completely full, and there's no time to write. And I wanted my writing to change in tone. Up to that point, it had been mostly journalism. I was writing a lot about other people's stories, happily doing that. The city is a great place for journalists. You walk outside the door, and there's a homeless person on the street. You can strike up a conversation, and it's it's great. But it wasn't a great place for introspective writing. And I, I wanted to stop writing other people's stories and write more of my own pilgrimage, my own search. The city was not a good place for that. Car horns and alarms are going off all the time. Buses are making noise. Uh, It was just too crowded. So we moved to Colorado, a place with fewer people in the entire state than in the city of Chicago, (laughs) and it's a big state. And we found a place up in the hills, um, very different. There were probably more people on my block in Chicago than all of the little town in Colorado where I live. But it gave me that quietness, that solitude that I needed to move into a new form of writing. And that's when most of my spiritually searching books took shape. Mm-hmm. It also puts you closer to the outdoors. I know you love the outdoors, don't you? I do. Yes. I was a runner in Chicago. I did up and down the lakefront. In fact, I went through the, I ran through the uh, Lincoln Park Zoo every morning, so I would wake up the lions and tigers. <laughs> but in um, in Colorado, they're not behind bars. Actually, <laughs> they're roaming all around. And uh, we have explored the the mountains. In fact, when we got here, you know, we're city slickers. We don't know what we're doing. But somebody said, "Hey, do you want to climb a mountain?" There are. 54 mountains in Colorado over 14,000 feet. Yep, the 14ers. 14ers. And so we climbed our first one called Sunshine Mountain. It's 14,001 Well, that sounds very easy. Sunshine (laughs) Mountain, yeah. Well, it's one of the easier (laughs) ones, fortunately. It's a good one to start on. And we kind of got addicted, and and, uh, Janet and I both ended up climbing all 54 of them. It took a long time. Oh, my goodness. uh, It was was a marriage tester and a marriage builder, I must say. Do you ever tire of writing? You've been doing it for so long now. It depends. I love the research. I love the editing. But the composition stage, when there's a blank computer screen or a blank piece of paper, depending on how you do it, and you've got to come up with new words, new ideas, new thoughts, it's exhausting. And I used to think it would get easier and easier. For me, at least, it's gotten harder and harder. Because there's this little voice inside me that says, you've already said this, what a cliche, anybody could say that. Um, I know what I'm doing wrong now as I do it, and so those voices just 
have accumulated, <laughs> and it, it, it's difficult. Uh, it's not become easier. I find speaking a lot easier, and, and we started traveling overseas, particularly my wife is a missionary's kid, and it, it's there you can speak and see the impact of what you're doing as you're doing it. Yeah. Writing what I'm doing, what I did today, this morning, no one will comment on until 18 months, two years from now, hmm. because it takes that long to get the thing finished and then to have somebody publish it and then react to it. Mm-hmm. So there's that uh, there's that act of faith, the, the hope that what I'm spending my time on this morning will uh, eventually have an impact on somebody's life. Yeah. But you don't know that at the time. You just have to proceed in faith. The last time I spoke with Ravi Zacharias, I asked him why he spent so much effort at writing, and his answer was because it's what outlasts us. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I and I've got a room in my office with the editions from international, whether it's Sweden or Philippines or Indonesia, and I look at them sometimes. Of course, I can't, I can't read those languages, but I think somewhere out there in entirely different circumstances, there are people who, who are encountering me and that I'm having a relationship with. It's not a personal relationship in the sense that I, I may never meet them, but it's a direct tie, and that's the beauty of writing, that you can do that. You don't have to go there in person. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned travel. Uh, one of the little books that you wrote, uh, I say little book, I'm sure it was probably very substantive, but it was uh, soon after uh, Glasnost and Perestroika in the Soviet Union, you have the opportunity to travel there. And then recently, in the last couple of years, I know you've been back to at least Ukraine, right? Yes. We were in Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Hungary, so I've been a fair amount of time in, in Eastern Europe, and I, I like that, actually. These are people who have a Christian heritage, but it's been ripped away from them. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to start from scratch. You get, you get to rediscover. You know, in the art museums, in the art museums in St. Petersburg, is some of the greatest Christian art ever done. The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt is there. And you can just take... Russian people and say, let me tell you this story. This is, this is in your own museum, and, and many of these are by your own R- Russian artists. But here's the story behind it. Here's what inspired that art. Yeah. The account I saw of you in Ukraine, you were meeting with young professionals uh, with Mission Eurasia, and this is a ministry that's very close to my heart as well, and it, it's just inspiring to see this generation wake up to their faith in the marketplace, isn't it? It truly is. Um, when I was in some of those countries, they said there was this gap in between where the old, there were the old believers, and these were the ones who clung to the faith and were many times persecuted or at least discriminated against because of their beliefs, because they went to church. You couldn't be in the Communist Party and not be an atheist. So the, these were people who we're serving God in a very difficult time, in a very difficult place. And then there were others who just threw it all away and, and joined the party. Well, later, of course, the party crumbled, and people found out the whole thing didn't work. It was, a, it was an illusion. And this new generation came up, and they didn't know what to believe. And, and they have looked to the old people, the older generation, and said, 
they had something to live for, and it was worth more to them than success and some of these other things. Hmm. And there's a renewal and an energy in that young generation. It's still very much a minority. It's not everybody. Right. But these are leaders, and I was so impressed with the young leaders of tomorrow that Mission Eurasia had, had gathered together. They've got kind of ongoing programs pointed toward leaders, and I... I look, I look in their future with, with great hope. Well, we also have radio stations there and social media broadcast through Far East Broadcasting Company. So it's, mm-hmm. I find that they inform and inspire my own faith. Uh, that's, that's what happens when I, when I hang out with these young people in places like Ukraine. It's amazing. Uh, in, in the moment we have left, uh, I want to talk to you about Scripture. You've, you've written several books about Scripture, and, but I, I know it's the foundation for your life. And just talk to me about Scripture for a moment, and and what it means to you, and what's fresh on your heart. I've taken it fast, and I've taken it slow. (laughs) When I wrote the book, Disappointment with God, I went away to Colorado. We weren't living here at the time. Uh, We were in Chicago, but I went away to Colorado, and in a two-week period, read all the way through the Bible, Genesis 1, all the way to Revelation, the end, looking for patterns of why God sometimes seemed to act in a very direct way and sometimes not long periods of waiting before God did act. Around the same time, I was also working on this project called the Student Bible. And so for three years, I was paid to go all the way through, again from Genesis to Revelation, but every day, every week, every month, for three long years. And I I like both of those. I like that overview. When I went through the entire Bible in two weeks, I had a, a sense of the plot, a plot of God choosing out of love to create creatures that he wanted to love him in return. And the links to which God would go, what he would put up with, how, how he would forgive again and again and woo and finally send his son and, and then turn it over to us as the church saying, you go as my father has sent me, now I am sending you. So I got that plot, the bird's eye view of what creation was all about, why we're here. We're here to please God, to bring God pleasure. And at the same time, I had the foundation of going back and going through the detail of that plot and that kind of, uh, you know, the stories, the literature in the Bible has, has informed everything that I've written. I've written some books directly about the Bible, like the Bible Jesus read on the Old Testament. But everything I write is informed by the detailed study I was able to do. I look back on with great fondness. I'm so blessed to have that as the foundation for my writing. Going back to the memoir that Philip is writing, following our interview, I found out that in typical Philip Yancey fashion, it contains some very honest and reflective thinking about the danger of repressing family secrets. We'll place a link to his bio and blog where you can learn more at firstpersoninterview.com. I'd like to take a few moments to thank the Far East Broadcasting Company for making this program possible. FEBC broadcasters around the world are some of the finest servants of Christ you'll find. As I get to know them, I'm continually challenged in my own walk in ministry. I hope you'll take a few moments to visit febc.org, explore some of their stories and testimonies. Once again, that's febc.org. FEBC, until all have heard. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.